The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, continuing our study of the Old Testament, Make sure we're in fellowship so that God the Holy Spirit can teach us, help us to understand these things, assimilate them into our thinking, to strengthen our soul, that we might advance to spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the Old Testament to look to, to see how you have worked from the beginning of creation in grace and in love, constantly exercising your grace initiative in human history, continuously working to reveal yourself and to redeem mankind. Father, we pray that as we study these things and we see how you work in bringing forth the nation Israel, that we might be challenged, that we might have our strength have our faith strengthened and confirmed in this study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to our eighth class in this Old Testament orientation where we come to the Exodus. Last time we finished Genesis. Exodus is perhaps the Exodus, not just the book of Exodus, but the event of the Exodus is perhaps the most significant event in the Old Testament. It is the defining event for the nation Israel. Everything in Genesis, everything preceding the Exodus, builds up to the Exodus and lays the foundation for understanding its significance and why God has done this in human history. Everything following the Exodus, the rest of the Pentateuch, Joshua judges all the way through the Minor Prophets, not only that, but even into the New Testament itself. Everything following this event is built upon it and flows and develops out of the Exodus. So it is the Exodus event that is sort of a cornerstone, a linchpin, in terms of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in human history. We'll see in the Exodus that it is here, it's in this event, that the family of Abraham becomes the people of God and then the people of God will become a unique nation, a nation of priests, unique in all of human history. It is at the Exodus that they are redeemed, but it is at Sinai that they receive the law. Just a little note, no extra charge for this observation this morning. It's amazing how many people always think that the law is the way to salvation. They go back and that's how Israel was saved. Israel is saved. If you look at it typologically, you look at the unfolding of history, Israel is saved at the Exodus. It is Passover that is the picture of redemption. The law comes after. The law is how the nation, now that they are viewed as a redeemed nation, it is how the nation is to live before God. It is not how they come into relationship with God. So even if you look at this thing from a correct Old Testament perspective and see the unfolding of the typology, you will understand that the significance here is redemption first and then the Christian life, which is what we'll look at as we develop our study this morning. Now, last time we saw that God brought forth the nation or brought the nation into Egypt as a way of protecting and isolating them. 
And somebody asked a question last time when I think it was, was Rachel had, uh, or Tamar, after that just really absurd, perverted, incestuous relationship between Judah, uh, the son of, of uh, Jacob, Judah, and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Remember, we saw that incident last time where, where his son had died, um, the oldest son had died, I think it was Perez, uh, uh, and then Onan died, and then uh, uh, Tamar disguised herself and stood outside the gates of the town, disguised herself as a temple prostitute, so that to force Judah to come up to his responsibilities, he's being irresponsible in terms of both the cultural and moral mandates of the time, in terms of bringing his youngest son along to marry her. He's already The oldest has died, the second has died, and now he, he won't bring the third one along. And she has gives, and in the process, she becomes pregnant. He goes down and goes into town, doesn't recognize her, um, pays for her services as a temple prostitute. She gets pregnant, has twins. There's this weird little episode that takes place that somebody asked me about afterwards where she's giving birth to the twins, and the first one comes out, I think it was Perez, and sticks his hand out. And so the, the uh, midwife wraps a red string around his finger. Why is that? Because in that culture, you have the law of primogenitor, that the oldest is the one who receives the inheritance right, the first one out of the womb. So this is the first one out of the womb. But not fully, just his hand gets out. And then he goes back in, the other one gets out. Now, the interesting thing is that it is the younger, the second one, who is in the line of Christ and is the one who... And that's what all of this leads to. If you read it in Genesis, it's almost lost without significance. But what happens is his name is picked up in the genealogy of Christ in the New Testament. And the purpose is to show that even in the midst of this rank carnality and the sexual perversion and the incestuous relationship, that God is still working in, in grace to bring about his redemptive plan. Remember, it is Jesus' title is what? The Lion of Judah. And yet our picture of Judah is that he doesn't care anything about the family anymore. He just wants to go out and completely assimilate with the pagan culture around him and he doesn't want to be distinct or follow God or worship God anymore yet in God's grace God turns the whole thing around so that's kind of the purpose behind that little odd little episode there now we come to uh, we finish Genesis and we come to the Exodus event Deuteronomy 4 32 through 35 helps us understand or give the image of what's going on here God has taken the family of Jacob down into Egypt. They're going to be enslaved. They are isolated in Egypt for a purpose, and that is to protect them so that God can bring about His redemptive work through the nation. In fact, the analogy that's used here is that of a uh, the, the fetus in the womb. It is this infant, this fetal uh, Israel that is in the womb of Egypt that will come forth, and God will do great things. Deuteronomy 4.32 reads, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you. Remember, this is Moses addressing the second generation. The Exodus generation has all died off at this point because of their failure at Kadesh Barnea. They had uh, died to sin unto death. It was at Kadesh Barnea, the entry part into the land, when that Exodus generation failed. They saw the giants. They saw the fortified cities. They saw the large number of people, and they all wailed and said, we can't do it. They failed to trust God. Only Joshua and Caleb trusted God. And so God took the life in, in uh, 40 years of everyone in that generation and if you work out the numbers it, it's incredible. It's like 5,000 or 6,000 funerals a day. It is a daily reminder that they have failed to obey God and that death is the consequence. So now Moses on the plains of Moab is uh, reminding this second generation that is positive to the Lord, is trusting the Lord of what has gone on in the past. And he says, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of heaven to the other. Has anything been done like this? Great thing. Or has anything been heard like it? Has, has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation. This is the imagery of birth. Taken a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God, 
There is no other beside Him. So God is going to do a unique thing in the Exodus event in bringing the nation out from this other nation that has enslaved them. Now let's review just a minute where we've, what we've seen already. These are the, those events, the former days mentioned in Deuteronomy 4.32. First of all, man was originally created in God's image and according to his likeness. And what we saw was that that terminology indicates that man is created a certain way to represent God. His immaterial soul is a reflection of who and what God is in terms primarily of his intellect and his ability to fulfill a particular function. That man is distinct from all of the animals and that has implications for the whole animal rights crowd because so many of them want to treat man as just another animal and yet the scripture says man is distinct. He's the only creature in the image of God and so man is created to represent God on the planet. Secondly, we saw that Adam sinned and lost his initial standing before God. This is called the fall. And God, man lost his standing before God and toward the creation so that now there is a curse on the creation and there is antagonism between man and the creation. Third, we saw that the original covenant that God had established with Adam to subdue the earth and to... Uh, Multiply and fill the earth is reestablished with Noah. There's the judgment on mankind because of their sin and their failure to fulfill the original covenant. So God wipes out everyone but Noah and his immediate family. The eight survive and go into a new world, the uh, post-diluvian world. And at that point, God reestablishes his original covenant with Noah. And we saw how Noah's descendants also failed. And they unite in the first global community, sort of a proto-United Nations. And they attempt to unite against God as symbolized by building this enormous tower, uh, a ziggurat, uh, at Babel. And again, God has to judge the human race by scattering the languages. Now, I made a note at that time that, that there was a man by the name of Arthur C. Custon who wrote back in the 50s and 60s wrote a series of books called The Doorway Papers. And somebody emailed me uh, just fortuitously at that time had no no uh, planning. They didn't know that I was interested at all. And they emailed me a, an internet site. All of his writings are now out of print, but there is an internet site that has all of his papers. And if you're interested, some of you I know were asking about him. If you're interested in reading some of his stuff on the genealogies in Genesis 11 and the sons of Noah and how they relate to human history, uh, you can probably type Arthur C. Custon into uh, a search field at uh, one of the search sites on the internet, and you can pull up those those websites. I've got the address at home somewhere on my well, probably here on the computer, but uh, we can get that another time. But you can get that. It's fascinating stuff. For example, one of the little things is one of the descendants of Ham was was a man by the name of Sin, S-I-N, Sin. And if you even today, if you look at how we entitle certain agreements and wars that involve the Chinese people what's it called, the Sino-Russian War, the Sino-Japanese War, the Sino-American Treaty, S-I-N. That goes back etymologically to that ancestor in Genesis chapter 11. And so that is the uh, that particular individual is the ancestor of the Chinese people. So it's just fascinating reading. But God has to judge the nations through the scattering of the languages that uh, isolates people into different groups. As a result of that... Um, Ethnic groups develop certain genes, become dominant. And God, at that point, exercises another grace initiative and begins a new work through a new race, the Jews. He calls out Avram, and through him he will redeem the remainder of mankind. He does this in basically three phases. He started by calling out Avram in about 2100 B.C., and he called forth a new nation. He promised Avram that he would have a seed, that he would be a father of many nations. And this new nation is called forth in 1446 B.C. at the time of the Exodus. And then the third stage is that he will use that nation to bring salvation to every nation. And that, of course, comes about through the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, through Jesus Christ, who comes to the earth, fully God, fully man, goes to the cross, and there he dies on the cross as a substitute for all mankind, pays the penalty for all sin. And all of this, God is working out through human history, through all of these events in the Old Testament. Now, in order to develop 
a nation, to have a nation, you must have three things. You need to have a people. Not enough to have just Avram and Sarah. There has to be a son. There has to be descendants. It's not even enough with Jacob. Jacob goes down to, according to Exodus 1, and Jacob went down to, to uh, Egypt, there were only about 70 people within his, his immediate family and a few servants, and that was it. So there needs to be more. So it is in the womb of Egypt that this nation develops and develops a group of people. Secondly, you need a constitution. To have a nation, you need to have a body of law to bind the people together. And it is at Sinai that they are going to be given their constitution, the Mosaic law. And third, a land. You can't just have a people without a place. And so they have to have a land, and that is promised to them. It is the land that is presently occupied uh, by the Canaanites, presently being at the time of of early Exodus. Now, this morning, what we're going to see is how God purchased or acquired His people out of Egypt in Exodus 1 through 18. And next Sunday, we're going to look at how He provides the Constitution, which is the Old Covenant. That will cover Exodus 19 through Numbers 12. And then all of that is put again, it's rehearsed in a sermonic form in Deuteronomy. So the first point, I want to try to cover two basic things. Uh, this morning. First of all, the acquisition of the people, which uh, we'll cover that as the first part. And then secondly, the requisite ritual that is involved in acquiring the people, which is the Passover. So the first section we'll look at is the acquisition of the people. First of all, there is a miraculous acquisition of the people in the Exodus event, and we learn that it is through there that through that event that they become the people of God. The Scripture compares the Exodus event to a birth process coming out from the womb. Hosea 11.1 states, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So throughout the Scriptures, there's this birth metaphor behind the view of how God redeems Israel, brings them forth from the nation Israel. There is a supernatural growth in the womb of the, na- of the uh, nation e- Egypt. There is a miraculous growth. At the beginning, according to Exodus 1.1, there are 70 persons, 70 souls, who go down to Egypt with Jacob. So it's during that time, roughly 430 years, that Israel grows from about 70 to 600,000 men in Exodus 12. 37. They take a census in order to figure out what their military potential is, and they number about 600,000 males above the age of 20 who are ready for military service. They exercised the universal draft in those days, and everybody, every adult male, went into military service. That's what they had to do in order to survive. Now, if there's 600,000 men, then you can figure there's pro- probably at least one woman for every man. So that means 600,000 times 2 is 1.2 million. Now, for every couple, you could put in two children. And if there are two children, then you have 2.4 million. And and there were probably more children than that. So, uh, in fact, in order to achieve the numerical growth, there are uh, several studies that have been done to show that this is not only feasible, but possible. Under uh, and very likely, especially if there's a low death rate and God is miraculously protecting them in, in the womb of Egypt and to accomplish this sort of growth from 70 to, to 2.5 million, you would have to have about five children per generation. So you put all that together, you probably have somewhere between 2 and 3 million uh, Jews enslaved living in Goshen. Let's put that in perspective population of Connecticut is 3.2 million. The population of the greater Houston area is somewhere around the same, about 3 million. So uh, you think about the logistics involved with that, how many people are involved, the feeding, the clothing, uh, finding water for that large number of people as they're moving through basically desert countries. All of those 
things are in the plan of God. I don't know that Moses necessarily paid attention to it, but if God could solve all those problems, then of course that's nothing compared to the problems you and I face in our daily life. So God easily matured the nation in those 430 years. There was supernatural, miraculous growth of the nation in the womb of Egypt. Secondly, there was a miraculous preservation of the nation inside the womb of Egypt. There's a miraculous preservation because they are not a, uh, they're not ethnically kin to the Egyptians. The Egyptians are very uh, segregationist. They, they are very racist in their views. And so it is somewhat miraculous that they survived. Of course, the story at the beginning of Exodus tells us that Joseph had favor with a, with a pharaoh and they lived in Goshen. And for a while, the pharaohs looked with favor upon the uh, kinsmen of Joseph. But then a new pharaoh came into power. Now, we don't know who these pharaohs are. The Bible does not name or identify who any of these people are, which is why I want to spend a little time on the question of when did this occur. See, what we know is there's a pharaoh who's kind, for several generations, they're kind to Joseph and his descendants. Then a new pharaoh comes along, and he has hostility to the Jews. Now they've grown and they swarm all over the land, according to Exodus 1, and they're viewed as a danger. So then they're enslaved by the pharaohs, and they go through several generations of slavery. But we come to a problem when we try to identify in terms of secular history, in terms of Egyptian history, who these individuals are. And I want to spend a little time talking about that this morning because personally I find it fascinating, but secondly, because Scripture is, and Christianity is not just a religion of the Spirit. You know, that's the term that people use. Religion is just something of the Spirit. Christianity is grounded in objective history. It is God working in human history. It is based on events. All of the principles of doctrine, principles of salvation, everything is grounded in real-time historical events so that if those things did not happen the way the Scripture says they happened, then there is no meaning to assign to those events. If those events didn't happen, then there's no meaning and it undercuts the veracity of everything else in Scripture. Let's go through our timeline. A little review of time from that we studied in previous weeks. We set up our B.C. timeline. This is extending backward in time. So the further back you go from the cross, the larger the numbers get. You have to think in, in, in uh, counting backwards. We'll put in a timeline of about 1,000 B.C. And we know with a fair degree of certainty that Solomon dedicated the temple in 966 B.C. Now, we, in, in some of my, I spent a lot of time this last week and some email with some guys who are really sharp in archaeology and doing a lot of study. And apparently the oldest uncontested date in ancient history is about 705 B.C. Are you losing me? Do I need to change the battery? Okay. The oldest contested date in ancient history is set about 705 B.C. in Assyrian history. Everything beyond that is contested. Everything beyond that is contested. About seven or eight years ago, I was unable to attend the meeting, but there was a uh, pastor's conference that we norm doctrinal pastors normally get together every couple of years and have a pastor's conference, and the subject was archaeology. And there were uh, three or four different Egyptologists there, all with their PhDs. None of them agreed on anything. And the bottom line is to understand that anything you read about Egyptian history prior to about now, I said the oldest uncontested date in human history is about 705, in ancient history is about 705 B.C. And as we'll see in a minute, in Egyptology, it's it's much much later than that. It's probably about 600 B.C. Anybody who comes along and says anything dogmatically beyond 600 B.C. is uh, uh, either ignorant or they've already made up their mind and they're just picking one of a multitude of options. And what's happened is that we have a tendency in conservative circles to have to go with uh, the dating in Cambridge ancient history and take those dates and then identify the events of Exodus with Cambridge ancient history. And as we'll see, there's some real problems with that. So we know the temple was dedicated in 966. Now, the way dating takes place, they didn't have a calendar. They didn't know when Christ was going to come. 
So they didn't have a calendar that said, okay, this is 966, and we're going to have New Year's in next month, and then it's going to be 965. And the next year, we'll have another New Year's, and it'll be 964. So the way you do Old Testament chronology is you look at the king list. You know you can resurrect or reconstruct who reigned after whom. And you know that so-and-so reigned for 30 years, and then he died, and after he, when he died, his son became king, and he reigned for uh, 22 years. And then he died, and then his, and so you, you reconstruct the timeline based upon that. Now, the confusing thing is that every country used different dating techniques. Some of them counted the first year, the accession year of the king, when he became king as his first year. Others did not. They, did, they used non-accession year dating so that it wasn't until the next year that became the first year. And sometimes they change. You know, for two or three centuries, they'll use accession year dating, and then they'll change, and they'll use non-accession year dating. Uh, the Jews did that. The Israelites used one method, and the, the southern kingdom in Judah used another method. So it gets real confusing. And if you go back and you look at certain older works that were done, for example, there's a work called The Coming Prince by... Uh, Anderson that w- dealt with Daniel chapter 9 and he says that the decree of Artaxerxes to send the people, the Israelites, back into the land was in 445 B.C. But if you read anything written today, it'll say 444 B.C. And all the dates changed by one year. On the early 60s, a scholar by the name of Edwin Teeley wrote a book called The Mysterious Numbers of the he- Hebrew Kings and he reconstructed all of Jewish, uh, all the chronology of the Jewish kings and that's accepted pretty much by liberals, conservatives, everyone, and just backing off using the biblical numbers and backing up from, from known events and then deciding and then correlating some of the things with monument evidence, some other things like that, and that's how you come up with your date. So we're pretty sure that plus or minus a year or two that the temple was dedicated in 966. Now, 30 years ago when I first started reading stuff on this, it was 961, and so the date of the Exodus was 1441. So I'm just letting you know you don't don't bet the farm on these dates. They're not absolutely certain. We do know that the scripture says that there was that the Exodus occurred four hundred and eighty years prior to Solomon's dedication of the temple. Now if that date is correct, nine sixty six, then the Exodus occurred in fourteen forty six BC. And I think this is probably pretty certain. I mean at the most all these dates have fluctuated over the last century is, is two or three years one way or the other. So we're within ten years of being correct. They were in, they were, the Jews were enslaved in Israel for 430 years, and that means that Jacob entered Egypt in roughly 1876 B.C. 2066 B.C. would mark the birth of Isaac, and 2166 B.C. would mark the birth of Abram. Now, this is our benchmark chronology. This is based on what the Scripture says. There's no correlation with anything else, with other cultures, other events. This is just based strictly on the numbers given in the Scriptures, in Chronicles, in in, uh, Joshua, in other places where you have the chronological data given, where you have father giving birth to a son and you're given the years that so-and-so lived X number of years and gave birth to a son. Now, that's one way the genealogies are written. Other genealogies are written and use terminology like so-and-so was the descendant of such-and-so. Now, that's real vague, and that can mean grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson. You can have many gaps there. That's the kind of genealogy you have in Matthew 1, uh, in Luke 4, some places in Deuteronomy, um, some of uh, the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Japheth, but not the descendants of Shem. With the descendants of Shem, you have much more precise terminology because you are marking the development there of the descendants of Shem and the heritage of the Jewish people. Now, having said that as our benchmark, we have a major problem chronologically, what I'll call the chronological conundrum. So we'll set up our timeline. Now, if Exodus occurs in, if the Exodus occurs in 1446 B.C., and we know that Abram was born then in 2166 B.C., then the flood would have to end in 2533 B.C., based on the numbers in the genealogical record in Genesis chapter 11. Now, when I was a student in Dallas Seminary, both in a THM program and later in a doctoral program, one of my favorite professors was the chairman of the Old Testament department, Al Roth. Now, Al had a fairly decent education. He had his Ph.D. in Hebrew from Dallas Seminary, 
and then he picked up his Ph.D. from Cambridge in, uh, in Hebrew and rabbinical studies. So he was fairly knowledgeable. And he wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation, or one of his doctoral dissertations, on the table of nations in Genesis chapter 11. And one year I was in a work studies class with Al, and I was talking with him after class, and I asked him, I said, what do you think, in your opinion, are there any, any breaks, any gaps in the genealogies in Genesis 5 or Genesis 11? And he said, on the basis of the strict exegetical evidence, you can't find a gap in Genesis 5 or Genesis 11. The problem is that biblical archaeology, or that archaeology disagrees with the biblical numbers. For example, in Egyptian history, the earliest dynasty of, of Egypt begins in 2920 B.C., which is 387 years, plus or minus a year or two, 387 years before the flood. Now, that means that the pyramids were built two or 300 years before the flood. And, of course, if the Bible is correct and it's a universal flood, the dimensions given in Genesis 6 through 9, then that would destroy the pyramids or at least give evidence of some kind of flood on the pyramids. There'd be a water line somewhere. But you don't have anything like that. So that's a major disagreement. Now, the problem is either the Bible is wrong or we have somehow misinterpreted the genealogical data so that we've calculated the time wrong, which of course is possible, or the chronological schemes of archaeologists is based on faulty assumptions. Now, I'm going to go with the third option because uh, there's a lot of archaeologists who, who challenge the dating system, uh, even in Egyptology. And the reason Egyptian history is so important is because all of your other chronologies from ancient Greece to Assyria to Samaria are all built off of, are all benchmarked on the Egyptian chronology. So if you're wrong on your Egyptian chronology, you're, that's going to affect the entire development of chronology in the ancient world. So let's put up our benchmark timeline again. And we're going to see that Egyptian history is built on five assumptions. It's like a five-leg table. And in the development of Egyptology, an assumption was made at the very beginning of Egyptian Egyptology when they discovered the Rosetta Stone after Napoleon led his armies down through the Mediterranean, through Egypt, and through Israel. And they discovered the Rosetta Stone and Champollion translated, finally translated, broke the code and translated it uh, the assumption was made that Ramesses II was the pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, the reason they did that is because this is a biblically-based culture in Victorian England. That's what we're talking about, early 19th century, early 1800s. They were a biblically-based culture, and they wanted to find evidence that substantiated the Scripture. So they're coming at it from good motives. Well, when, when the, they read Exodus, they saw that the, that the Israelites built the, the sword cities of uh, Ramses and uh, uh, Python. And so uh, when they built those cities, they named it Ramses. It was typical to name a city after the, the uh, pharaoh at the time. So they just assumed that if they built a city called Ramses, it was named after a pharaoh named Ramses. And Ramses II was one of the greatest pharaohs of Egyptian history, and he had tremendous amount of power. So they automatically assumed that this must be the pharaoh of the Exodus. False assumption. But that governed their assumption. that they, they Really, they assumed that Ramses II was the pharaoh of the oppression. It was later they had to modify that and change it to the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But they, that's why when you watch the Ten Commandments, the Pharaoh in the Ten Commandments, Yul Brenner, is Ramses. It goes all the way back to this assumption that was made in the early, uh, early 1800s. The second thing is that uh, Ashurbanipal invades and sacks Thebes in 664 B.C. Now, we're going to discover that's uncontestable and it's certain there's a tremendous amount of evidence to correlate that, and that's the oldest certain date in Egyptian history. Anything beyond 664 B.C. is highly debated. The third plank, the third leg on the table of Egypt, Egyptian chronology is the equation of the Egyptian pharaoh Shoshank I with the biblical, biblically mentioned pharaoh Shishak. In 925 B.C., 925 B.C., the Bible records that a pharaoh named Shishak invades the land under the kingship of Rehoboam 
in the southern kingdom. And so when Egyptologists, when Champollion, and this was like in the 1830s or 1840s, found the stela and evidence of Shoshank I, he immediately saw the similarity between Shoshank and Shishak and correlated the two and said these are the same, the same two guys. The problem is that, that lexical evidence today has shown that when the SH sound goes from Egyptian to, to Hebrew, it goes from a sh to a And when in Hebrew, when an S goes back to, and it makes the same thing, when you have an SH in Hebrew, when it goes to Egyptian, it goes from a sh to a and so Shoshank would be Sosank in Hebrew. You would drop the S-H. And so there's other reasons. The, uh, uh, the evidence of his battles and everything else just don't match up with the biblical evidence. But that was said in concrete and is an undergirding uh, assumption of all Egyptian chronology. Fourth, there's the, what's called the Ebers calendar, which is a very... Um, I get, I don't have the background to understand all the astronomical calculations and everything, but it's based on astronomical observations and ancient records. And according to the Ebers calendar, they place the 18th dynasty of Egypt as beginning about 1550 B.C. And then based upon that chronological assumption, they dated Ramses at um, 1279 B.C. Hence, they came up with a date for the Exodus of 1279 B.C. However, biblical information seems to suggest a date of 1446 B.C., and that's why we have a problem. But, because the Ebers calendar is, is false and off, the Ramses date is off, and since there's plenty of evidence to indicate that Shoshank I is not to be equated with Shishak, everything after 664 B.C. is faulty. Now, I have really tried to simplify a lot of information. If you're interested in it, I have a a two-volume two uh, video cassette series called Pharaohs and Kings done by David Roll, who is a contemporary Egyptologist today who has challenged and put forth a, a very viable scheme of redating everything in Egyptology. He's not the only one to do it, by the way. But this was done on Discovery Channel. It's pretty interesting. And if you are interested in that sort of thing, you can ask me and I'll loan it to you. Now... This is how it works out. Here's our benchmark time. 966 B.C., we know, is when the temple was dedicated. 1446 B.C. is the date for the Exodus. 1526 B.C. is roughly the date of the flood. Now, if you set up a... Um, or, excuse me, 1526 B.C. is the date for the birth of Moses. 1526 B.C. is the birth for the date of uh, birthday for Moses. Now, if you take conventional, traditional Egyptian chronology, this is a chronology you'll find in Cambridge Ancient History, the New Kingdom dates are roughly from about 15, well, really, it depends on who you look at. Now, according to Cambridge Ancient History, it began with almost the first in 1570 B.C. Now, I have two sets of dates up there. The first set is in white, and the second set is in yellow. And the reason is the white date reflects the older Cambridge Ancient History date that came in, uh, that is pretty much dominated. Any kind of standard conservative Christian work like Eugene Merrill's Kingdom of Priests, which Eugene was one of the great, Professor of Mighty Dallas in Old Testament, one of the great conservative Old Testament scholars today. He just accepts Cambridge Ancient History verbatim. Many people do. The problem is, what if Cambridge is off? And Kenneth Kitchen, who is also today a well-respected uh, Egyptologist, he doesn't agree with role at all, may have big battles over chronology. But Kitchen comes along. Kitchen has published a voluminous work in the late 80s where he redated the entire New Kingdom and his date for almost is moved up almost 30 years to 1539 to 1514. Well, if these guys' dates change 5, 10 years off of the date in Cambridge Ancient History, then when people come along and say that, well, it was Hatshepsut was the mother of Moses, but most the third was the Pharaoh of the Oppression. Uh, Minotaph II was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. If things change even five years, all that's wrong. My basic point is we have to be very careful in identifying the biblical events with certain secular individuals because we don't have enough information. And there are pe you know, many people... In fact, I've taught this. I've gone with Cambridge Ancient History in the past. It's only been about the last five years that I've done an in-depth study of the chronological problems associated with all this. 
and realize that there's some major problems. So, Amos is the first Pharaoh of... I'm not going to put all the Pharaohs in here. That'll confuse you. I'm just putting the major players in here. Amos is the first Pharaoh. Had Shepset is usually suggested to be the, the uh, Pharaoh's daughter who took Moses from the bulrushes. And then Thutmose III, who is her, also her son and would be the adopted brother of Moses and probably the Pharaoh of the Oppression, if not the Pharaoh of the Exodus. As you can see, the Cambridge dates are here. Thutmose would be, reign from 1504 to 1450, which fits nicely because the Scripture suggests that the Pharaoh, that after Moses killed the, uh, the, the Egyptian overseer, that the Pharaoh who ran him out, who was trying to arrest him and cause uh, Moses to flee to Midian, that that Pharaoh died just before Moses returned to Egypt. So we come to Thutmose and we say, okay, it's a lengthy reign and he dies just before Moses returns. But, but wait a minute. Titian has redated Thutmose and now he's from 1479 to 1425 and that doesn't fit any of the biblical data at all. But then Titian accepts a, a late date of, the 12, of 1279 for the Exodus anyway. But what David Roll has done and others have done this too, he goes in and says that and everybody accepts that like the 20th or 21st, 22nd dynasties of, of Egypt did not follow one another, but there was one pharaoh in Thebes and, and one um, in Memphis, and so they overlapped. They were contemporaneous. Well, they've done the same thing with the 25th and 26th dynasty, and if, if they overlap instead of follow one another, then you take out about 200 years. And Roll has worked through a lot of different information, and it's really fascinating reading, but he takes almost 350 years out of Egyptian chronology. Well, what does that do? Well, watch carefully. We're going to have a little animation fun here on the overhead. It moves. See, it just moves it down. So that the 18th dynasty, according to Cambridge Ancient History, is right in the middle of this whole Egyptian period. But if Roll is correct in taking 350 years out, then the Exodus occurs before the 18th dynasty. And so those people that were bending over backwards trying to identify with Moses and the Pharaoh and Moses' mother really didn't live at that time at all. Now this is helpful too because one of the problems in Egyptian and Egyptology is you have all of this correlation in the Bible between Egyptian history and what happens to the Israelites. And yet when you go and you look in the 18th dynasty and you look in the 12th dynasty and you look in some of these other places, for evidence of the Jews being there and what the Bible says, you don't find it. And so people say, well, you know, the Jews just made all that up. Well, if you're not looking in the right time place, you're not going to find any evidence. And if your chronological scheme is off, you're not going to find any evidence. And so Roll comes up with a date uh, with a pharaoh called Dudimos, which he identifies as the same pharaoh that Josephus identified with the, um, the pharaoh of the Exodus. And Dudimos was in the 12th dynasty. But there are problems with that, so I just try to avoid all of that. So that's just our little chronological um, sidetrack there to see what God has done in protecting them and don't get off track trying to identify who the Pharaoh of the Oppression was, who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was, who Moses' mother was. Now you'll read that in a lot of conservative things, but there's a lot of problems. I think it's fascinating information and it's very important for us to understand that the Bible does place these things in a particular time frame and if we misidentify that then what happens is if we build a case that, that the mother of Moses is, is, had Shepset and that Thutmose is the Pharaoh and then that proves to be false what have we done? We've set the Bible up for attack and criticism set our position up so we need to be very careful and very cautious in, in identifying these events we just don't know enough in fact the entire 12th dynasty of, of the Pharaohs is known from only one scrap of papyrus that contains eight names of the 40 names in, uh, forty rulers in the 12th dynasty. That's how small the evidence is that we're building these mountains on. So we have to be very, very careful. Well, we've seen that there was a, a miraculous uh, growth of the nation in Egypt, a miraculous preservation of the nation, there is a miraculous birth of the nation. Egypt is a reluctant mother. When it's time to give birth, Egypt doesn't want to give birth. Egypt doesn't want to release 
the Jews. So they go through the travail of the ten plagues, like labor pains. And God brings on these labor pains of these ten plagues to force the Pharaoh to release the Jews from captivity. And then fourth, go through these maps. Fourth, there is miraculous protection of the new baby. Once she is born, she's utterly defenseless. These are not trained military men. They do not have weapons. And the mother now wants to kill the baby. It is out the army to destroy the Jews. Now let's look at a map. This is a map of the area that we're concerned with. And I'm going to show you what some of the issues are here. There's a lot of controversy over the route of the evidence, I mean the route of the Exodus as well. Now if you look at this area here on the overhead, this is the Delta region, and Goshen is identified as probably being in this area here. When the Jews left, they headed out across this in this direction, and then across here, somewhere in this area is the identification of what's said in your English Bible to be the Red Sea. In Hebrew, it means Yam Suf. It's the Sea of Reeds. So it's not identified in the Scripture as the Red Sea. It's a large body of water located in this area right here. They crossed the Yam Suf and they head south down into the Sinai Peninsula. Now, we don't know where Sinai is. There's a traditional location that is at the tip of the peninsula, but virtually nobody really believes that. No uh, uh, archaeologist worth his thought believes that that is the historic site. There's a lot of problems with it, and there are a lot of suggestions. One of the recent suggestions that came, that has come out, very popular, is a book called The Gold of Exodus. I don't know if you've seen it. I ran across the book in a, in a bookstore, I think it was in the Houston airport. And these were a couple of adventurers and gold seekers who heard that that the gold of the Exodus, because when the Jews left Egypt, they took all this treasure with them that the Egyptians basically paid them off and said, now get out, we don't want any more plagues, any more problems, leave. And so they took all the gold with them. That's how they were able to fashion all of the uh, all the furniture for the tabernacle. And this new suggestion is that they went down and they crossed down here and then came up through Arabia, the uh, traditional homeland of the Midianites, and then the, the real true side of, of uh, Sinai is somewhere in this area. And they have a lot of pictures and evidence that's become real popular. But I've talked, talked with several archaeologists at the pre-trib rapture meeting back in December. And none of them bought it. None of them buy the traditional site either except that. But the problem here is that, that the uh, location of Sinai is supposed to be only about a, a day's march or so from Kadesh Barnea, which is up in this area here. And that's just too far. You can't make it and unless you're riding the fastest period in the world uh, going 24 hours a day. You can't make it in a day from this location up to here. So the usual suggestion is that Sinai is somewhere in this vicinity. So that's the location of... And this would be the route of the exit that they took coming down this way as God delivered them miraculously from their mother who was out to kill them. Now, the second thing that I want to talk about, we've seen God's acquisition of His people, this miraculous redemption bringing them out from the nation. And this is tied into the tenth uh, plague, which is the death of the oldest son. And it is through the death of the oldest son, through the death of Pharaoh's oldest son, that God actually is going to redeem His people. So you see all of a sudden a tremendous analogy to salvation, that it is through the death of God's son that God is going to redeem all of mankind. And what delivers them from the death angel in Exodus chapter 12 is the ritual of uh, Passover that God explains to them. So Passover must be understood, and Passover, of course, is the background to the Lord's table. Passover must be understood in the context of the tenth plague. It's at this time that the entire world of Egypt is under a death sentence from God that the oldest son will die unless the Passover ritual is followed precisely. The Passover ritual is the only way to have life. Otherwise, God will kill the firstborn from Pharaoh's house to the handmaiden at the mill. That's what the Scripture says. From one end of the country, from the highest in the land to the lowest born in the land. Whether you're Jew, whether you're Egyptian, God is going to kill the oldest son in every household unless Israel is released. 
And of course, God provided a redemption solution to Israel so that she could avoid this death sentence. And it is a picture, just as it is their deliverance from death and their deliverance from slavery, it is a picture of our deliverance from the slavery of sin. It portrays what God has done in saving us from sin. So it is only as the Israelites pass through this event nationally it is a picture of their redemption. At the heart of the ritual is the Lamb. The Lamb pictures the death of Jesus Christ. Remember John the Baptist when he saw Jesus come said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is the Lamb that pictures the death of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 we read, Clean out the old leaven. This is part of the ceremony of Passover. At the beginning, they were to sweep all the leaven out of the house because leaven is a picture of sin and so it's a picture of cleansing of sin that takes place through the death of the Lamb. So cleanse out, clean out the old leaven, Paul says, so that you may become a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. This is a reference to positional truth, the cleansing we have at the point of salvation. And then Paul says, for Christ our Passover, our Paschal literally, is refer- it's a, it means Christ our Passover Lamb, also has been sacrificed. So the Old Testament Passover lamb is a visual aid given to help us understand the dynamics of our salvation. Turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Now you all can wake up now. We're going to get into the Scripture and get away from all that technical chronology stuff. I know that for some people that just doesn't really excite you or interest you, but others of you have questions and it's fascinating to look at this and everybody wants to ask those questions and answer them, so every now and then you have to get into some real nitty-gritty stuff and solve that. Because I know that as soon as I come along and just make the statement that we don't know who the Pharaoh was, somebody's going to come along and ask, well, wasn't it Thutmose, or what about Hatshepsut, or I heard this, and so I've got to deal with it once and for all and answer that question because I know I will be shot at once or twice for taking that position so I better explain the rationale. It's amazing how many people just automatically assume that if certain scholars say something that they're automatically right. And there are many scholars who don't agree with the uh, Cambridge position. Of course, the Cambridge position was written in 1971 and that was uh, almost 30 years ago so a lot has been discovered in Egyptian history and Egyptology since then. Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. So this establishes the ceremonial calendar for Israel, their religious calendar. It is to be the first month of the year. This is the the month of uh, Nisan, Nisan in the Babylonian rendering, Nisan, which is roughly March or April. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of the month, they are each one to take a lamb. So it is, there's very precise instructions on the ritual. On the tenth of Nisan, they are to take for themselves a lamb. This is the type. A type in the Bible means an example. From the Greek word tupos, which means an example. So you have a type, which is an Old Testament figure that represents a New Testament truth. So the lamb is a type. The antitype is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The altar is a type of the cross. Well, here we have the type of the selection of the Lamb on the tenth of the month. Jesus entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday, which is probably either Saturday or Monday. It was not on on Sunday. Probably Palm Monday. And Jesus entered on the tenth. And it is on the fourteenth that Jesus is uh, then uh, taken to the cross. So all of these dates are specifically fulfilled in the chronology of Christ. And that's a whole other problem that I'm not going to get into this morning. On the 10th of this month, they're each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. So the first thing we need to observe is that 
the killing of this lamb portrays the future that is a picture of our salvation. The picture of our salvation, and this is given in the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 12. And the eating of the lamb portrays our sanctification. This is covered in verses 8 through 11. So the killing of the lamb is a picture of our salvation. And we have read the passage in Exodus 12.3 and 12.4. And there are two things that we should notice from this. First of all, that the supply is sufficient for everyone who wants to be delivered. There are plenty of lambs. The supply is sufficient for everyone who wants to be delivered. This relates to the doctrine of unlimited atonement, that Jesus Christ's death is sufficient to save every human being who ever lived in human history. Christ died as a substitute, the Scripture says, for all. First uh, Timothy 4.10 tells us that, that Christ died for all, especially those who are saved. So there's a clear teaching in Scripture that Jesus' death is sufficient for all, but it is actual or efficacious only for those who apply it. Only for those who apply it. And that's what we see here. There are plenty of lambs, but the sacrifice is effective only for those who apply the blood to the doorpost of the house. So the first thing we need to notice is the supply is sufficient for everyone who wants to be delivered. Secondly, the supply is valuable. It's not to be wasted. It's not to be taken for granted. If your family's too small, Josephus tells us that a lamb would feed about 11 adults. So if the family's too small, go share it with the family next door. Don't waste it. It's precious. It's valuable. And of course, the New Testament refers to the blood of Christ as the precious blood of Christ. It is more valuable than gold and silver. So the, the blood is, the, I mean, the lamb is very valuable not to be treated lightly or wasted. Remember, this was the idea in the Abrahamic covenant that when, when God said, those who curse you, I will curse, that first word for curse we saw means to treat lightly. To treat lightly. Uh, to treat as if it's just something common. Hebrews 10.29 has the warning, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. So we are not to treat God's grace lightly. There is divine discipline for those who do so. The next thing we see is the standard for the Lamb in verse 5 through 6a. The standard for the Lamb in Exodus 12, 5 through 6a. There we read in verse 5, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. This refers to the impeccability of Jesus Christ, that he was without sin. He is undiminished deity and true humanity. He was born of a virgin, so he did not inherit the uh, sin nature from Adam. And because he was not born as a child of Adam, but through, through the virgin, Adam's original sin was not imputed to him, so he was unblemished. So he, it is an unblemished male, a year old, that is mature, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So you pick it on the 10th, keep it till the 14th. Then the whole of the assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. It is at twilight that Jesus dies. But sometime between 3 and 6 in the afternoon. Between 12 and 3, they're sacrificing lambs in the temple. And it's probably not long after 3 o'clock that Jesus dies. He has to be down, they have to have his body down off the cross, and they have to have it in the grave before the sun sets. So the, the, uh, there is very precise instructions here, and it's fulfilled exactly in Scripture. First of all, we see that the lamb is perfect, and this is also seen in Leviticus chapter 22. Second, the lamb is isolated and proven. It's demonstrated between the tenth day when it's chosen and the fourteenth day when it is sacrificed. It's tested, it's evaluated to make sure it is without spot or blemish. In the same way, our Lord's life was uh, laid open to all for observation during his three years of public ministry. And then we come to the slaying of the Lamb itself. The slaying of the Lamb itself in Exodus 12, 6 through 7. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So we have the time, and then secondly, which we've already covered, the time, that it was exactly at that time that Jesus fulfilled the type 
And then secondly, no bones were to be broken. This is in verse um, uh, verse 6b. Verse 6b, uh, verse 46b in the same chapter and uh, also a few other passages which we will look at. In Exodus 12:46, we read, It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Notice the emphasis there, you don't break the bone. This is to set up a type. It is also to indicate a certain respect for the body of Christ. Why is that? Because this human body housed the incarnate second person of the Trinity, and God the Father treats the physical body, the house of the Lord Jesus Christ, with respect. So the bones were not to be broken. This is seen in Isaiah 53.9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So it was prophesied that he would uh, that his he would be uh, there would be no broken bones. He would be buried with a rich man. John 19.33. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. John 19.36. 1936, for these things came to pass to fulfill the Scriptures, not a bone of him shall be broken. Psalm 34:19 reads, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So the clear evidence from the Old Testament is that there would be uh, no bones broken. Now what was to happen is described in the sprinkling of the blood in verse 7 of chapter 12. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, what does this look like? Here's the doorpost and here's the lintel. So what they were to do is they were to take the blood and smear it on each doorpost and then over the top. And if you connect the dots, you get a cross very symbolic, representing what will eventually take place. Not that they would have understood all of this. They may have. There may have been more revelation along with this. But it clearly is to be fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there were three parts to the meal. The first seven verses, the sacrifice of the Lamb portrays our salvation. The meal itself portrays our sanctification, the spiritual life, of the believer. The blood has been applied. We as a family are inside the house now. Uh, believers, we're safe and secure. It really doesn't matter how you feel when you're inside the house. Think about that night. Think about the screaming, the wailing that you might have heard. Whatever else may have gone along with it. You're inside the house and you know that the angel of death is passing along. Will it pass over your house? You may have doubts. You may be scared. It doesn't matter. You're inside the house. The blood is applied. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how many doubts you have. It doesn't matter how scared you are. It doesn't matter what your emotions are. You're still saved. You're in the house. Now, in the meals, they were to eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So the first part of the meal represent is the roasted lamb. They were to eat the entire lamb, which represents feeding on the entire person of Christ. Remember, we saw that same imagery in John 6, when Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides with me. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about ongoing fellowship and spiritual nourishment. So the, eating the roasted lamb represents feeding upon all of the doctrines related to the person of Jesus Christ. We are spiritually to meditate, to contemplate, to study every aspect of the person of Jesus Christ. The hypostatic union, the kenosis, His deity, everything. We are to think His thoughts. We are to be completely saturated with the mind of Christ according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. We are to think like He thinks. We are to react like He reacts. We are to live as he lived and have the character he exemplified. And that can only be accomplished by internalizing his word. That's represented by the second thing that was eaten that night, the matzah, the unleavened bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, the matzah not only, I think, represents the word of God, but it also represents a particular attitude. 
In Exodus 12.31, we read, Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, go out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. This is the Pharaoh telling them to take the Hebrews out of the land. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes and on their shoulders. See, the point is they're in a hurry. They're leaving the old life and they're going to the new life. They don't have time to leaven the bread, wait for it to rise and go through the whole process. They've got some place to go. So it's a picture for us of what I teach called personal sense of eternal destiny. It is a recognition that we have a new destiny in Christ. That's where we're headed from the moment of salvation. Don't look back to the old life. Focus on the new life. We have a new direction a new calling, a new direction. We're to leave the old life without making any provision or preparation. We're not to compromise with it, but we are to go forward. It's a new life. It's lived on a new basis with new power, new provision, new promises, new principles, and we are to learn what that is all about and advance in that direction. So the the uh, bread represents the fact that they are in a hurry to leave the old and go to the new just as we should be in the Christian life. The third element of the meal is bitter herbs. This is a reminder of their slavery in Egypt. And to us, it should be a recognition that there will still be hardship and suffering in this life. That there is always suffering involved with our identification with Christ. If we are to be different, if we are to think different, if we are to act differently from what we were, then we will suffer for it. People will question us. They might ridicule us. Uh, Christians have been thrown in prison. They have been martyred for their faith. But that is what the bitter herbs represent, is there will still be suffering associated with the spiritual life. And then last, we, it, it pictures the fact that we should live our lives as if we were going somewhere. That's what they're doing. They are eating that meal, standing up, with their staffs in their hands, ready to go somewhere. And the image there for us is that we should live our new life as if we are ready to go somewhere. We are advancing in the spiritual life and we are putting behind us the old things. The Second Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone be in Christ, all things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. We have a new position in Christ. We have a new life. So we are to advance and go forward. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning to see... Uh, just the tremendous things that are there and how you have worked throughout history to bring about our salvation and redemption. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without faith, without hope, without eternal life, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that certain. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All that is required of salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. It doesn't demand moral reformation. It doesn't demand joining a church. It doesn't demand giving money or anything else. All it asks is that we receive a free gift, something that was done for us on our behalf. Jesus Christ died as our substitute. So salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned. May we be challenged and encouraged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.